This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Pop Culture. I'm Gail Fashingbauer cooper the author of two pop culture books, Whatever Happened to Pudding Pops and The Totally Sweet 90s, both written with Brian Belmont. Today, I'm speaking with Robert K. Elder, one of the authors of Hidden Hemingway, Inside the Ernest Hemingway Archives of Oak Park. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. First, can you just tell the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. This is my seventh book. I am a uh, former full-time journalist, but I, uh, I failed upward into management. So now <laughs> I, uh, I'm an executive, uh, I'm a director of uh, uh, new product development, digital product development and strategy at Crane Communications. I live in Oak Park, which is Ernest Hemingway's hometown. And uh, besides that, I have three movie books because I'm a movie fanatic. Exactly. That's, I think, how we got to know each other a little bit. And yeah. Oak Park is in Illinois. It's, is it a suburb of Chicago or? Yep. It's the first suburb west. Okay. Okay. And can you tell us, you have two co-authors. Can you just mention them? Yeah. Um, Aaron Vetch and Mark Chirino. And they're not with us today, but you're going to fill in and, and take us forward into the Hemingway uh, archives. I'm leading, yeah, I'm leading the charge. Great. Uh, first off, this is a beautiful book, um, beautiful full color photographs and clippings and handwritten notes. You could just, you know, you can read it straight through or you can kind of page through and find maybe the section that you're most interested in, whether it was Hemingway's childhood or things relating to his books, his movies, bullfighting, you know, his relationships, whatever. And it's just so colorful and so bright and so many fun things in the archives that you found. It's really a pleasure to read. So oh, congratulations. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank yes, you. it's great. Um, the preface of your book kind of sketches out how it began. Can you kind of give us a little summary of how you got started? Sure. Uh, well, I used to be the editor in chief of uh, a chain of newspapers that included the oak leaves and the oak leaves is a, um, I don't know how old they are now, but it's more than 100 years old. Uh, it's a newspaper that still exists, and it's still here in Oak Park. Um, and he- Ernest Hemingway actually delivered it as a teen. Wow. So I, uh, I found myself, uh, again, as the editor-in-chief of this newspaper, and there was a, an anniversary coming up. I think it was the first, um, it was the 100th anniversary of uh, the start of World War One. And I said, well, you know, I know that there's this special collection um, here in Oak Park, and it's got a whole bunch of Hemingway stuff in it. Let's let's take a look. Maybe there's a special section. And so we found, like, his early diaries, um, which for the Oakleys was really cool because um, in his, like, little account ledgers, it said Oak Leaves in his, like, very distinctive script. So we made that the uh, flag or the title um, of the of the issue for, for one issue. And, uh, there was just this treasure of stuff. 
And uh, I ended up asking the director, John Barry, I said, John, why isn't there a book? And fast forward to two years later, and here we are. (laughs) And now there is one. Um, And so the Oak Park Archives, is it all at the library or is it a museum? What is the No, it's it's actually four places, believe it or not. So Ernest Hemingway um, was a pack rat. Um, if we want to be nice about it, and a hoarder if we don't want to be nice about it. Okay. Um, uh, Sandy Spanier, who is the head of the um, Ernest Hemingway Letters uh, Collection, uh, she's at Penn State, but the publisher is Cambridge. She came through, and she sort of made me see it very differently. They're releasing the second volume of Letters, and and she said that Hemingway touched uh, that that Hemingway kept every piece of paper he ever touched. And had I not been through the archives already, I thought she w- I would have thought she was kidding. But if anything, she was understating it. I mean, the, the joke is, like, not only did he keep any paper he touched, he kept every piece of paper he saw. So, um, you know, it was a really interesting way to document a life. Sure. And you said there's four different locations for the archives? Sure, sure, or? sure. So, so um, there's the Ernest Hemingway Foundation of Oak Park Archives, um, and that is located on the third floor of the library. And that is that contains everything from – let me see if I can remember it. It has uh, Agnes von Karowski's letters to him. She was the nurse who he fell in love with in uh, uh, Milan when he was recovering because uh, he was wounded in uh, World War One when he was a volunteer ambulance driver for the American Red Cross. Um, and that's also sort of a collection of collections. There was a collector named Waring Jones who left his – uh, collection to uh, the foundation. Also, Marceline Hemingway. So Hemingway's sister left all of her manuscripts and all of her papers uh, there. Um, so it, that's a vast collection. And sort of in that collection, in, in uh, similar locations, uh, uh, is the um, collection of the Oak Park Library itself. And they have like his high school assignments, which is very, very cool. Right. And uh, some of them um, we sort of show for the first time. Uh, and then the high school has some material, although we could not get in there. I'm hoping on a second edition will be allowed. Mm. And on and then the fourth one is at the Historical Society of Oak Park and River Forest. And that was really interesting because they had material and letters that scholars had not seen before. And in fact, um, when we found them, we were barely able to get them into the third edition of the collected Ernest Hemingway letters. So we really, really lucked out. Wow. Sounds like it. Yeah. So there's some places that people, if they were Hemingway scholars or college students, could actually go to the library and request to see some of the collections? or Yeah, yeah. Or if you were just anyone off the street. I mean, they're open public collections. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And can you tell us a little bit about Oak Park, what it was like maybe when Hemingway lived there and what it's like now that you live there? Sure. Well, um, it is uh, when he grew up here. It was a very uh, religious and socially conservative and dry community. They uh, prided themselves on uh, their temperance movement. You know, he grew up in a very strictly religious household uh, with a mother who was domineering. She was a uh, really successful uh, music teacher. She always told her children that she gave up her life on the opera, uh, on the operatic stage, actually. Um and, uh, you know, sacrifice it for her six children. Um, she was so successful that she made more money than her doctor husband. Wow. So, um, you know, uh, one of the things we have in the book are some of her handwritten 
um, pieces of sheet music. Again, some of those have not been heard in a hundred years. So, um, he would have been, um, or he was a very active teen. In fact, if you look at his, um, high school yearbook and we have some pages from that in here, he played in almost every sport. Like he's literally on almost every page of his high school yearbook. But what gets glossed over is he was not good at any of them. (laughs) You know, he was a, uh, you know, on the swim team, on track, on football, but he was not a star athlete, but he had a tremendous amount of determination. Apparently. Yeah. Well, and, and Oak Park at that time was also known for two other things. One is it's the hometown of Frank Lloyd Wright, um, the famous architect. And um, during Hemingway's lifetime, actually, uh, he would have been exposed to a scandal because uh, Frank ran off with the um, client or with the wife of a client, uh, Mama. So um, uh, given where he lived, it's also uh, likely that the um, Lloyd Wrights were on his paper route. Oh, wow. So uh, so there was a little intermingling there. But I, I can't figure out if uh, Frank Lloyd Wright ever had an opinion of Hemingway or vice versa. That the, the scholarly record is surprisingly thin there. They didn't cross or speak of each other, at least publicly. No, no and, 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 Frank, and Frank would have been um, a generation... Uh, right after, or right before. So he would have been much older. Gotcha. Um, and uh, the other one is Edgar Rice Burroughs. Oh, wow. So Tarzan. Have, author, yeah, right? Tarzan and John Carter of Mars. Mm-hmm. He would have been uh, the most famous author in town. So, you know, it was a vibrant, vibrant place. Um, today, still a vibrant place. Uh, you know, we uh, cash in on all three gentlemen. You know, there are <laughs> museums for each of them. Um it's a you know it's a bedroom community for Chicago. Um, a lot of um, artistic folks and journalists live here. Uh, Chris Ware, who's a, a cartoonist for the New Yorker sure. and Graphics, lives here. Uh, Steve James, who is a um, documentarian best known for Hoop Dreams, uh, lives out here. Um, Alex Kotlowitz, who's a writer, so uh, a very civic-minded. Uh, and then, and less socially conservative uh, community now, but uh, it's uh, beautiful and uh, active. And this book was sort of an act of civic pride for me. It sounds like it, and it's not dry anymore. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's I, you can buy booze here now. Exactly. There I actually go. think it's still a little restrictive on when you can, but you can buy it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Um, and so what years did Hemingway live there? He was born there and lived entire childhood or? Exactly. Yeah. So 1899 to, um, 1917 roughly. And then he went off to be a cub reporter at the Kansas city star after graduation. And then very, very quickly, um, went to world war one, uh, you know, volunteering for the, uh, American red cross as an ambulance driver. It's also, um, Interesting to note that uh, uh, on another front, so he went to the Italian front, but Walt Disney went to the French front. So they had the exact same job. Both drove ambulances in the First World War. Oh, wow. Um, And and then he came back and lived with his family for a very, very short time. Um, You know, he was wounded. He was wounded uh, sort of proudly 227 times. He had (gasps) 227 wounds on his body and, uh, you know, it was a, a shrapnel explosion he was caught in a mortar attack Mm. and um you know uh, and then just did not get along with his his parents you know they 
still treated him like a child, um, and it, it did not go well. So, uh, you know, he almost very quickly, um, uh, after Agnes von Krauski uh, broke off their engagement from how he saw it, uh, he moved on, started working for uh, the Toronto Star in, um, I think, in Toronto really briefly, and also in Chicago as a correspondent, uh, fell in love with Hadley Richardson, and then they moved to Paris. So after um, the early 20s, he doesn't come back except for his father's funeral, um, and then does not come back for his mother's funeral because they had such a contentious relationship. And there's a controversial quote about uh, Oak Park and Hemingway. Can you tell us about that and fill in the true story with that? Yeah, yeah. So um, if you ask even people who live here, they'll say, oh, well, we heard that Hemingway said that Oak Park was a place of uh, uh, wide lawns and narrow minds. Uh, And I want to point out that my lawn is not that wide. Um, (laughs) Except when you're mowing it. (laughs) It's not even that. It's barely existent. I live on a small lot. Uh, but um, it's a completely apocryphal quote. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that Hemingway were, was supposed to have said that just aren't documented. You sure. know, um, the, the other one is like there's a whole movement that sprung up around um, something that he supposedly said, you know, the six word novels or six word. Oh, stories. the baby shoes. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, baby shoes never used. Oh, um, for sale, baby shoes never worn or something, yeah, right? Exactly. It's supposed to be the yeah, saddest six words ever. So. Yeah, yeah. You're and so you're you're closer to quoting that correctly than I think I am. And it's it's um completely apocryphal. Like wow. that story is related, I think, through Isaac Asimov, who's telling a story about I, I think the Algonquin round table and, ah. and Hemingway's appearance there. So, you know, we know more about Hemingway. Um, you know, we have I think it's like three million words um, through his letters, multiple drafts of his novels. He's a better documented writer than than any other writer in history. Nowhere are these two things um, recorded. Um, that's not to say he he might not have felt that way about Oak Park, right? Um, but I think it might have been more reflective of his family because um, his mother, in particular, at the start was not supportive of his writing. And in fact, when A Sun Also Rises uh, debuted, his first sort of major serious novel, uh, she called it the filthiest novel released this year. So, yeah. So it was, it was, it was tough for him to, you know, shine in this very conservative household. Sure. Sure. So somebody may have just made that up or thought that was what he or his family, how they felt or. Well, it, it, the, his first biographer, Carlos Baker, tries to prove it, but just never did. And, and again, I think it's a good line and easy to repeat, but it's just, you know, undocumented. In fact, somebody uh, at the Ernest Hemingway Foundation of Oak Park put a bounty and said, if anybody can ever prove that he said this, you know, it's like $1,000. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no one no one has come forth. No one has come forth. But the, le- but the legend lives on. We, you know, we did our best to debunk it. Sure. Okay, sounds good. Um, so let's go through the book a little bit. You've got a beautiful, colorful map and guide on pages four and five, which highlights some specific locations in Oak Park. So if I'm a tourist or a fan or I'm just in Oak Park for a day, are there some spots on that map that you would say, oh, you got to drive by this, you got to go in this place, you got to stop by, it'll give you some knowledge about the author? Yeah, I mean, the the, the easy ones are, you know, his 
his um, birthplace because that's a museum now. And you can go in and literally see the room where he was born. Um, there's a whole bunch of the family furniture there. Um, and there are guides who will take you room by room and tell you stories. Wow. So uh, that's really important. There's also a Hemingway Museum on um, 200 North Oak Park Avenue. And so that has some of his materials and it's a, a multimedia museum. So it really um, tells his life, his life story. Again, if you know you're coming in advance, go to the Ernest Hemingway Archives, and that's in the Oak Park Library on the third floor. I think on Saturday they have open hours, but if you call ahead, usually they make accommodations for you. Um, I always say, I always like the weird, like, little, uh, you know, places. Like, um, if you go to, um, uh, where is it, it's Forest Home? No, no, no. You know, I don't think it made the map. Maybe it didn't make the map. Um, no, here it is, Forest Home Cemetery, and that's um, 863 Displains Avenue in Forest Park. So that's the next town over, and his uh, his parents are buried there, and I think his uh, maternal grandparents. So, um, you know, it's not that far away, um, and in fact, it's not the, where the plots are are not very well documented. You know, you can sort of figure out the, the area, and so I went there at the time with my, I think there were six, my six-year-old uh, twin boy and girl, Eva and Dylan. And so I said, okay, guys, you know, let's just go row by row. So we'll just take three rows and, you know, it'll take us five minutes to find it. And so we found it. And, uh, you know, I have a very sweet, curious little girl. And she says, wow, I can't believe I'm standing on Hemingway's mom. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. dear. So, uh, you know, it's a lovely cemetery. And it's interesting to see all of his um, family in the, in this small little area. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Cemeteries can be fascinating. Is his high school still there and looking like it was, or is it different now? It's still there. It's a little different. Um, the football field where he played, I think is still there. Um, and they have a Hemingway room, which I've not been in, uh, but it's restored to the period, uh, from when he went to school there. Like a classroom? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. wow. That's I think kinda... it's more of like, yeah, it's more like a reading room now, but uh, it was restored a few years ago. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Oh, neat. Um, let's just talk a little bit about his life as you go through it so thoroughly in the book. Um, you, it, Our audience may be more familiar with some of his younger descendants. I mean, Mary Ellen Margot Hemingway, the actresses, they come to mind for a lot of people. Uh, but your book digs into the generations before Ernest himself was even born, grandparents, that kind of thing. Do you have a favorite story or discovery from his you know, days before he was even around? Well, you understand him better when you see him as a kid and you understand his his family and his fascination with war because both of his grandfathers were uh, Civil War veterans. Oh. And so he grew up uh, with those stories. I, I think it's Anson Hemingway was the grandfather who never talked about it. So it was a traumatic thing for him. Um, but uh, his maternal grandfather, I think if I'm remembering right, just never spoke of it. And were they Union or? Uh, yes. Both Union know. Army? Okay. Uh, yeah. And um, uh, so he always thought of war in the very Teddy Roosevelt way. You know, this was a chance to prove yourself and to um, uh, test yourself and to prove your patriotism. Sure. So growing up in that climate, it's, it's, it's easy to understand. My, my favorite story from when before he was born actually comes from some taxidermy, believe it or not. <laughs> Okay. So in the in the book, uh, there's a there's a 
a photo of these these little owls, and uh, in, within the family they're called the honeymoon owls, and they're again these two little like baseball size owls um, uh, on a stick, basically on a little log. And the story was that when uh, Mr. Hemingway, so uh, Clarence Edmund Hemingway was his father, so people called him Ed, um, and his mother Grace were on their honeymoon in Michigan. Um, they were in a uh, intimate embrace, and these owls would not shut up. And so after being interrupted far too many times, Mr. Hemingway emerged with a shotgun and uh, immortalized this disruption by stuffing these owls. <laughs> so that's a they, great they, story. Yeah, they live there now. That's awesome. Um, and then as we move into his childhood, there's a really strange thing, which I somehow did not know about until reading your book. Can you explain the situation with his sister and the twins that weren't twins? Sure, sure. So his mother, who was a, a very strong-willed, peculiar woman, was obsessed with the idea that uh, her children could be perceived as twins. So she perceived or she pursued this um, story uh, so much so that so Marceline, his older sister, who is 18 months older, um, she held Marceline back in school. So she got an extra year of kindergarten so that they could enter grade school together as twins. And, uh, you know, she also did this thing where she probably far after it was appropriate, dressed them alike. And so in the book, there are a few photos of Hemingway dressed as a girl. Um, and uh, it's been pointed out and actually much debated. There's a whole wing of, of Hemingway scholarship devoted to this. And Kenneth Lynn wrote a, a incendiary biography that basically says, hey, if you want to understand his hypermasculinity, well, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a response from him being raised as a girl, you know, or, or, or at least being humiliated by wearing these dresses far past when it was appropriate for him to be doing so. And again, uh there are other scholars who say, like, listen, it was a perfectly, perfectly appropriate, um, you know, perhaps charming Victorian custom. Um, I, I doubt if Hemingway would have seen it that way. Right. You and know? how old was he before he was dressed in boy clothes? Um, well, I, I don't think it was a constant thing. I think it was intermittent. Um, mm. uh, and uh, but there are, you know, you know his mother took it so to the extreme that in the pictures, uh, you know, there's there's a picture of, of uh, Hemingway and Marceline holding flowers, and the caption is two little girls and their peonies, uh, you know, and or two little girls with their dolly, and they're pushing their younger uh, uh, sister in a, in a doll carriage. So it might have just been dress-up, and her mother might have seen it uh, as harmless dress-up, but, um, you know, the twinning went both ways. So when... Marceline was in Michigan where they spent their summers. Um, she also was sort of dressed as a tomboy. And there are a lot of pictures of her in overalls, um, you know, sort of looking like a little boy. Oh. And and uh, Marceline at a certain point rebelled and had uh, someone cut her hair really short so she could um, disrupt this twinning 
basically. <laughs> and um, her mother was so angry that I think it was in second grade, she made her wear a baby's bonnet to school. Oh, and so, you know, in second grade, you're seven years old. That is humiliating. Right. And, and finally, into the second week, her uh, her teacher stepped in and said, that's, that's enough. So uh, it was a really interesting time to grow up for them. That is a strange childhood story. Really, yeah. you'll wonder about it. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about his home. So he was born at home. And you can, said you can see the home that he was actually physically born in, because back then a lot of people were not born in hospitals, certainly. Correct, correct. Yep. Um, so he, he was born in uh, in his bedroom. Or wait, was he born? No, I think he might have been born in his parents' bedroom. His parents' room, uh, maybe. Uh, and then they moved it over. So, yeah, um, so his uh, birthplace is there and standing. And how long did he live in that home? Or I think, um, well, they they moved around. So he lived in three houses in Oak Park. Okay. So um, I don't know the dates exactly. They're in the book. But um, he spent, you know, his whole childhood and teen years here. But they lived in three different houses. Okay. Was there one that was kind of like the house they lived for the longest time or that meant the most to them, do you think? Or well, the I, I, I think um, the uh, birthplace is special, but Hemingway would have remembered the what, what is often called like his his boyhood home, mm-hmm. um, and that actually is privately owned now. It's a private residence, although there's a a stone and um, uh, bronze plaque in the lawn. Um, but that's where he wrote a lot of his early stories. So you know um, things like a matter of color and. Um, uh, you know, he wrote this thing called the class prophecy, which for his yearbook was what people would be doing in a few years. So, um, you know, a lot of um, I think he would have had a, a lot of fond memories for that house. And that's um, the third house that he lived in. Yeah. And also probably some complicated memories because, you know, his mother had his mother designed it um, after her uh, parents passed away. They moved out of the family home. They're out of the birthplace. And uh, she designed this, and she had a huge music room, and uh, so there was piano music and opera music coming out of it all the time. She was his cello teacher. Hemingway played the cello. So, you know, it would have been a complicated place for him to to grow up. But again, he did most of his early writing there. Uh, And I think think you can go there. Again, it's a private residence, but it's uh, the woman who lives there with her family. Uh, runs an acupuncture clinic out of it. Oh. So if you have an, if you have an appointment, you can get a sneak peek. Wow! And these look like kind of large homes. Were they a wealthy family? Would you say his his uh, his mother made a lot of money? It sounds like as a music teacher. You know what? Not overly wealthy. No, I mean, um, and I think if you would have asked the parents, neither one of them would have said that they were comfortable. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, Mr. Hemingway was always fretting about money. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he did commit suicide right. Ed, Ed Hemingway did. And, um, you know, his relative said, you know, it was the pressure of money. However, they were well off enough to have a cabin in, uh, Northern Michigan in Petoskey. And at a certain point she made enough money when most of the kids were grown up that she had her own cabin built on the other side of the lake. So she could have some peace and quiet. Hmm. Um, you know, Hemingway would tell people later that, you know, oh, she, that's what she spent my college fund on, you know, and it was a, one more reason to hate her, which mm. is not true. It was, it was her own money. And, um, 
he wasn't going to college anyway. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest about it. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite item from the archives that Hemingway himself drew or wrote? Um, there's a great bio on page 82 of your book where he erased something that's kind of interesting, um, where he erased, I intend to travel and write, which is exactly what he did. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the that is a wonderful entry. And it, it just gives a little snapshot of who he is. He talks about his favorite writers, um, O. Henry, um, Stuart Edward White, Kipling. He talks about his favorite flowers, the tiger lily and the lady slipper. And he loves trout fishing and hiking, shooting, football, basketball, and boxing. Um, actually, not basketball, but just boxing. Um, and then, again, very faintly, like, like erased. It says, I intend to travel and write. So that is something that gives you, you know, insight into his character. Um, some of my, you know, favorite weird stuff um, comes later in life. Like we mm -hmm. found a um, note that suggests he had an affair with his sister-in-law. Oh. Uh, so, so that's, you know, very interesting. So meaning uh, his brother's wife or his wife's his wife's sister. sister. His wife's sister. Okay. Yeah. Is Hadley? Uh, no. Well, and, and, and maybe your folks know, maybe they don't, but he was married four times. Right. So this would have been Virginia Pfeiffer. Or oh, okay. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, it, it's a it's kind of on its face. I thought when we found it, it was sort of, oh, you know, just this like innocuous little note um, because it's faint. And it says, you know, do not read until you're on board. And, you know, just uh, a little something to, uh, you know, brighten your day, love Ginny. And I thought, okay, that's probably maybe from one of his paramours. And, you know, he's being written sort of a coded note um, that would be safe if someone else found it. But when you take into account, you know, that it's from his sister-in-law, and if, and if anybody is interested, it's on page 175, um, it's too intimate. Um, and the more we dug into it, we came to the conclusion that there was something there. And it, it might have been before he was married um, to her sister, um, Ruth Hawkins, who's the, the scholar uh, and the, the, the best informed scholar on this, thinks that they definitely had some sort of, um, they had a night together, uh, but she believes it was before um, he was married. But, you know, when he met um, Virginia and uh, Pauline, who eventually became his second wife in Paris, he was more attracted to Virginia, but uh, he preferred Pauline's fashion sense. She was in this like chipmunk coat. And she <laughs> said, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to take her out, but in her sister's coat. Um, and so they had this incredibly powerful bond. And the more we sort of have looked into it, even after the book was published, you know, he had a flask that he called his Ginny, that it was it was actually um, inscribed with her name that he carried around. Um, he also um, uh, dedicated Men Without Women, his short story collection, to her um, up until the very last moment. And then he pulled that um, and, and rededicated it. Mm -hmm. So they had this very intimate, intense bond. Um, she, um, throughout her life, she, she's a fascinating person, period, but she was, uh, preferred the company of men and women. Uh, most of her long-term romantic relationships were with women. Um, and in fact, her, her paramour, um, later in life ended up 
marrying Aldous Huxley. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, the doorways of perception, you know, LSD pioneer. Um, and they all lived together in what some people um, hypothesized was sort of a, a sexual triptych. Um, and unfortunately, when Huxley's uh, house burned, we lost all of the Hemingway letters. So we, we really don't have a lot of insight in their words about the nature of their relationship. Um, we do know that after uh, Hemingway left uh, Pauline for uh, Martha Gellhorn, his third wife, um, that uh, Virginia was very acidic toward him and very uh, protective of her sister. So, it, again, you just pull it a thread and it all unwinds. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. That's really Let's talk just a little bit about his own writing, as you have some schoolwork papers there and other things he wrote for the school publications. Yep, yep. So, um, you know, we have uh, the Tabula, uh, which was sort of his literary magazine, and his, um, uh, it also worked as his yearbook. So in there, we've actually reprinted for the first time his class prophecy, his senior class prophecy. And again, that's sort of like, you know, so-and-so will end up in the war. Which is many pages long, right? It's, it's a lengthy. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's actually one of the cool things is no one had ever published that before. So we were happy to do that. Um, you know, he uh, did some of his early short stories uh, there. And we actually sort of show you A Matter of Color, which is this boxing tale uh, that was very, very interesting. And in fact... There's a, a comic book. Uh, it's a giant phone book sized comic book called uh, The Graphic Canon that Russ Kick put together. And he chose that story because it's a very, very interesting story. Um, you know, so we do have a lot of his early writing, like How to Hike. He talks about, um, you know, a lot of outdoors stuff. Um, some of the early writing that I like is actually not really his, uh, his early journalism or his early classwork. Some of it is like things he wrote in other people's yearbook. So uh, there's there's one actually on page 94 uh, where he um, writes this little poem and it says, Ernest M. Hemingway, I've never guzzled beer nor wine and yet they call me Hemingstein. And then there's a there's a little like it looks like a wine glass, but it's frothy, but it's supposed to be a beer stein. Um and, you know, that's mildly funny until you realize that Hemingstein was his nickname that he and his friends gave himself because they all gave themselves Jewish nicknames. Um, and, you know, that was at a time where anti-Semitic humor was more tolerated. Sure. Sure. Oh, uh, can you talk a little bit about how he was viewed by his classmates? Was he a popular guy? You said he wasn't a great athlete, but he certainly was on a lot of teams and clubs and different yeah. things in school. Yeah, yeah, no, no. He was very, very popular um, and, and very well regarded. Um, people um, always sort of knew that he would uh, become a writer of some sort. Um, in fact, in uh, it, it didn't make it into the book, but I wrote about it since, if people are interested, for the comics journal. Um, I, I wrote this piece called uh, When uh, Wolverine Met Hemingway, A History of, uh, of uh, Ernest Hemingway in Comics. And uh, so there's this weird pop culture thing because, you know, he casts a large shadow into pop culture. You know, he shows up in uh, Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen movie. Yep. Uh, he's all over. But he's in comics like 50 or 60 times. And the first time, yeah, and the first time he's in comics is in his own yearbook. And one of those is a newspaper that, um, you know, talks about what heaven is for him and, you know, what his 
what his writing career would bring and whatnot. So um, there's there's that. And, and Gail, I have already forgotten your question. I just started. <laughs> I think I was just asking about how he was viewed by his classmates oh, or, yeah. or what yeah, they yeah, thought so, of so, him. Yeah, so he, he was very popular and uh, gregarious. Um, one of the things <clears throat> that at least two classmates said, they said, you know, if anyone ever saw him take a girl to a dance or whatnot, you know, we, we don't know who that is. Um, you know, he was more interested in fishing and, um, and, uh, you know, hiking and that sort of stuff. All those and, outdoor sports that we associate him with kind of. Oh yeah. And one of the things that, that I found actually was this, um, little published, uh, poem, uh, and it was mixed in with his classwork. And so we just sort of assumed, oh, this is just another piece of, of uh, classwork. Until you read it closely, and this is on page 90, um, and it reads, um, Your matchless grace, your sensuous loveliness. And it's a poem that you realize is to a classmate. And, and we found out that it's to a woman named Annette DeVoe. And I actually just wrote about this for the Chicago Tribune because I tracked down her family. And they said, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, they dated. So it sort of changes the perception of what his life was like. And he was also, you know, um, uh, romantically interested and may have dated briefly a woman named Frances Coates. Um, and, but, he, you know, he was this guy who sort of fell in love easily and was in love with love. But but it's it's a piece of the book and a piece of the archive that you know rewrites what people might have earlier thought about him. So it's it's a wonderful find, and and uh, you know I, again I've I've already written about this, but I think anybody who ever fell in love in high school or fell in love in college understands that sort of gravitational pull that love can have on you. Sure. So you know, and the the last line, um, you know, is. You know, I'd gladly walk through hell with you or give my life. And I think, you know, we can see that um, that line where infatuation and love sort of blur when it's your first, you know, romantic experience. That is such a, um, you know, magnetic pull. Um, So I was interested in, in seeing him as a young teen who was not open about his romances. It was very, very interesting. Right. Right. And that kind of leads us up to, you've mentioned her a few times, but uh, Agnes von Krakowski, who inspired, of course, a famous character. Um, Can you talk a little bit about her and and the role she played? Yeah. So um, uh, Krakowski is the last name. Krakowski. Krakowski. And she uh, would love to have you believe that she did not inspire Catherine Barkley in A Farewell to Arms, but she is absolutely Catherine Barkley in A Farewell to Arms. (laughs) and, you know, when he was 19 years old, he fell head over heels in love uh, with this nurse who was seven years older than he was. And, uh, you know, scholars later and biographers later have said, you know, it was sort of an immature um, romance. You know, she, uh, you know, he was in love with her. He was infatuated with her, but it was really one sided. But I think we show because we reprint a lot of these letters and we actually show you know, the handwriting in the letters, I don't think it was, I don't think it was one-sided at all. She was very passionate and, and makes him believe how much she loves him. He believed that they were engaged um, and came back and told everybody that they were engaged. But she is um, 
lovely and uh, passionate about him. And um, at the same time, she keeps calling him kid. <laughs> you know, uh, she is uh, not dismissive, but uh, she is very much, she very much considers her, herself, you know, his senior. Um, but uh, one of the things I hope we show is this is uh, a, a true romance that just did not work out. In fact, you know, she had been engaged before and broke it off. Um, and then she was engaged again um, when she broke off her uh, relationship with Hemingway. And so that um, sort of seismic shift in his life and in his heart changed the way he dealt with women. Um, you know, he tended to be passive aggressive and was one of those guys who would sort of make you break up with him before you broke up, you know, you know, so mm. it, it, he, he became much more um, guarded after that. Um, you know, he, he, he told a friend, uh, you know, she doesn't love me. She takes it all back. A mistake. One of those little mistakes, you know, um, but you know, I, I can't kid about it and I can't be bitter about it because I'm just smashed by it. All I wanted was ag and happiness, and now uh, the bottom has dropped out of the whole world. So you know, she was uh, she was it for him, right? Uh, and uh, I hope you know we're able to show that. And and I also love just the handwriting, just the tactile handwriting. And we we um, reprint her dear John letter to him, which is just heartbreaking. Mm. And was it the age, or was it just that she wasn't didn't have the feelings for him, or? She would say it was the age difference. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like the letter begins out, you know, Ernie, dear, dear boy. Hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and she actually, you know, says, so kid, you know, so she, she really sort of hammers this home and, and she sort of says, you know, she was more, uh, more like a, uh, uh, a mother than a lover to, to, to him, which is not what anybody wants to hear ever. No. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, she she says in the letter, she says, for quite a while before you left, I was trying to convince myself it was a real love affair. Um, but she says, we always seem to disagree and the arguments always wore me out so that I finally gave in to keep you from doing something desperate. So, you know, very passionate. But again, he had an inexperienced heart. Interesting. And let's just move on a little bit to the books, Farewell to Arms, so on and so forth. Um, right. Are there some favorite memorabilia in the archives, book covers, reviews, uh, books that maybe changed in the writing that you may have seen? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, all of it. <laughs> You've given right. a, a lovely introduction to all of it. Yeah. Um, you know, some of my favorite things are uh, super rare books. So, they're, you know, his first bit of publishing is a book called In Our Time, which is a whole bunch of uh, short stories from uh, 1924. He, he published it with Three Mountains Press in uh, Paris. And there is one uh, copy in Oak Park. I mean, it is super rare. There are only 170 copies that were uh, fit for sale um, because some of them were damaged in the print run. Uh, and so very few exists. So, you know, holding this book and getting to see it and we, you know, we sort of give it a full page because it's really interesting. It's a mix of, you know, journalism and fiction. And, uh, you know, he takes a swipe at Mussolini because he, um, 
he interviewed Mussolini when he was a journalist. So it, it, it's really uh, uh, interesting stuff. Um, I actually like um, some of the pulp covers. So one of the really interesting things is we take, you know, the covers of The Sun Also Rises and whatnot, and we have this, uh, you know, r- this 1949 Bantam paperback edition. So, uh, you know, just getting to see publishing and publishing trends throughout the years you could see how it changes. Oh yeah. I was just flipping through now and some of the, the covers are not the covers you see on a book like that today. They're like you say, there's some pulpy ones. There's some uh, real colorful ones, a variety. Right. right, right, right. So, I mean, that was just really, really fun to watch. And, and again, our, our goal was to tell, you know, his life story through objects. And so, you know, finding some of those rare editions was uh, a, a real treat. It was very cool. Yeah. And what about the, okay, we have to talk about the bullfighting because that is just one of the things I think of when I think of Hemingway first off. And you found some bullfighting related items that are in the book. Yeah. So um, in fact, on page 143, there's a, um, a bullfighting poster um, sort of of the period. And I think it's in the Warren Jones collection. So we don't know if it was Hemingway's or if it's just of the period, but we have a whole bunch of things that are like bullfighting tickets. And there's a picture of him with a, a steer. You know, he he sort of uh, uh, went to uh, San Sebastian in 1927 and sort of posed as if he was bullfighting. You know, he would tell people in letters, you know, I I uh, completed, you know, one full Veronica, which is a, a, a bullfighting move. And, you know, with everything in his life, he pretended to be more of an expert than he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, that sort of stuff, the bullfighting, I think is of its time. It, it perhaps doesn't age well because I think modern audiences see bullfighting as particularly barbaric, right. not just because the bulls died, but the horses were often gored to death by the bulls. Ugh. Um, you know, and, and, and it, you know, in that book, there's such detail um, about uh, how the horses die. Like, literally, they're gored, their entrails fill out. And then, it, to, to make it worse, and, and we're, you know, we're going to have a, a, a sensitive uh, spoiler warning <laughs> here. Um, they would try to pack them back in with sawdust. Oh, jeez. Like, you know, but that sort of material, you know, he was an author who believed that authors had to expose themselves to death and had to be near death to understand, um, you know, life. Right. Um, and again, it's of its time. Uh, I don't think we could romanticize it, um, as he did. Um, but you know, he named his first child, John Nicanor Hemingway after, you know, his favorite bullfighter, he and his wife's favorite bullfighter. Right. Right. And this was not something he grew up with in Oak Park. He had to go across the world to find. No, think about how exotic it was like something so strange and so culturally alien. Um, And, uh, you know, you will find some Spanish writers who just think his coverage because he went back. He covered it, I think, for Life magazine. Um, They will just say, you know, uh, that he was not a great critic of bullfighting. And, you know, uh, he went back in um, 1960, he wrote this uh, series called The Dangerous Summer, which was this sort of um, uh, the season where there were these two bullfighters, um, Luis Miguel Dominguin um, and uh, uh, Antonio Ardones. And I know I'm slaughtering those names, so I'm sorry. 
but uh, you know, it was a passion all of his life, regardless of what the Spanish thought of him. <laughs> and you talked a little bit about he had four wives, um, yep. in you know, very different women, all of them. Was there a sense that he was a bad husband, not a person who was meant to be married, or did he just, you know, not want to? have their relationship or what was with all the marriages? Uh huh. I mean, I think it was a, a, a couple of things, you know, he was a, he was a man of large appetites. So that was part of it. Um, some of it was, again, he was in love with love. So especially that passion and energy of first love, um, he was sort of addicted to, I think he, it was hard for him to, stay married because he often had the most power in the relationship. Um, and that was not always true because, you know, he kept marrying upwards. He kept marrying, you know, wealthier and wealthier women who could support him because he was not always, you know, a, a world famous writer. Um, and I think once he got famous and, and had the attention that his legend afforded him, uh, it was hard to say no, mm. you know, um, there's a comedian, uh, who once said that, you know, men are as faithful as their options. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that might be Bill Maher actually. Uh, but you know, I think it's a miracle. He was married only four times. <laughs> and he was still married to his fourth wife when he killed himself. Is that they were yeah. still married? Yeah. Mary, Mary. And, and not for, you know, she did not give up. You know, he was he was infatuated with a a, a woman named Adriana, who was a, a young artist in Cuba, uh, who actually did uh, uh, I think a couple of book covers. I think she did um, across the river and into the trees, and maybe Old Man in the Sea, but across the river for sure. And um, you know, Mary grew so tired of it that she moved out of the house for a while, and he moved in Adriana and her mother. Wow! So, so uh, he would have been tough to be married to, I think. Yeah. And is there anything about the end of his life in any of the archives? I mean, anything about his death? Or, or, yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that we have that is extraordinary, but it's sad as well. It's one of the last letters he ever wrote. Um, and uh, some people know this, but I don't know how common knowledge it is, is he um, was fighting depression um, you know, he survived two back-to-back -back plane crashes in Africa. Um, he had already won the Nobel. He was having a hard time writing and completing sentences, and he just became more and more paranoid. And in order to treat his depression, he went underwent a couple of times electroshock therapy treatment in um, uh, Rochester, uh, Minnesota, at the Mayo Clinic. And it just exacerbated his decline. You know, he, he couldn't hold a thought, you know, he mm -hmm. was frazzled. He was increasingly paranoid, um, and increasingly suicidal, you know, um, they had to take <clears throat> guns away from him. He, um, at one point tried to walk into the propellers of a plane in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but what we have is this, um, letter that he got from Ray Olson, who was one of his, uh, buddies. And, uh, the, the thing that is sort of sad about it is, um, it's not even written in his hand. It's dictated to a nurse and then Hemingway signs it. 
Uh, and he, you know, he just says, you know, it was worth going to Rochester to hear from you, kid. Um, I'll be out of here soon. Let me know how you are. And uh, he sort of re- recounts this trip um, that, uh, you know, he went to uh, in uh, Illinois to uh, Starved Rock, which is sort of a little um, uh, state park here. And so, you know, it's one of the last things he ever wrote. He wrote it um, on uh, January 15th, um, 1961, and uh, six months later, he was dead. Oh, jeez. Wow. And, uh, you know, we're kind of winding up. Is there anything that you really just, you pulled out of a box or you flipped through a page in a ledger and just were like, wow, this is, this is amazing to me. That kind of blew your mind in your, in your research? That was the entire book, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we were always finding weird, lovely, interesting things, you know, including these letters that no one had ever seen. Yep. Um, you know, I had to beg and blackmail my own press to, like, you know, get objects in because we were going to press. And it was it was sort of, you know, threatened to upset the printing schedule. But I kept finding amazing stuff, <laughs> um, including, like, on the, on the back of the um, – book there's a, a a photograph of him in a in an italian officer's uniform pointing a gun and think of again he's the best documented writer probably in history um no one had ever seen this photo you know it just wow. no, and and so i said listen we have to use this this is amazing no one's no one's ever seen this so um if you look at it it's uh it's it's on the back of the book uh next to a quote from garrison keeler so it was hmm. nice would there be a second edition? I mean, do you want to go back and, and dig up more? And Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's there uh, at this point, um, you know, we're, we, we've only been out about four and a half weeks, um, but we're almost sold out of our print run. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah. So we'll go back for a second printing. And I think in a few years we'll do a second edition. I hope to be able to include some of the material from the high school. And then just stuff keeps bubbling up. Like, you know, we found pictures of him in a child's choir. Um, you know, there are, uh, we found another sort of official portrait of him um, as a Red Cross volunteer. So there are all these amazing things that we keep finding. And, uh, you know, even after the book, I'm still writing about stuff I'm finding. So, wow. uh, yeah, it's a project that will not die. So stay tuned. Yes. For more. And are there any other projects that you're working on that you want to talk about or with or without your co-authors or? Yes. Yes. They are all top secret. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one that uh, I'm going to do. So again, my, um, my job is with uh, Crane Communications and we have a, um, a series called If I Knew Then, where we ask business people about a mistake they made that changed the way they did business. So, you know, we've included everyone from like Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank to um, Emmett Smith, who, you know, is a former NFL running back sure. and uh, now a real estate magnate. Um, and uh, it's really, really interesting. It's like it's like going to business school. Um, and some of them are wonderful and funny and self-deprecating and some of them are sad. You know, I've interviewed, you know. 300 of these people now and it's not just me doing the series but i did a lot of them and i've had people cry Mm -hmm. you know i've had people um sort of have reconciliation after their column ran uh so i think that's the next big project so maybe that's a book and that's a you know a web series or a tv show but that is sort of next up on deck wow fascinating 
And is there anything about the book that you wanted to mention that I haven't asked you about? Maybe the reaction or just something else that you wanted to share? No, just the, the, I think um, just the support that we've been given, not only from Oak Park and, and uh, the people who have read the book, but we got this lovely sort of um, uh, reaction from people we asked to read it. So, uh, you know, Garrison Keillor wrote this lovely you know, blurb for the book, um, you know, uh, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll just boil it down. But he basically says, you know, it's a privilege to look through his closet and read his stuff and discover him as a mortal man. So, you know, growing up with a Prairie Home Companion, it's it's uh, flattering to have him. Uh, for sure. Say something. Uh, Scott Rowe, uh, you know, called it an invaluable book for anyone interested in Hemingway or the development of a major creative mind. Um uh, so Marta Werner and Jonathan Eigen, all these people were so kind to say, you know, just lovely things. And, you know, we, it, it just sort of keeps growing every time, um, you know, we do an event and we, we have like how many events, I think 15 uh, into 2017. Um, uh, it's been amazing. And we have, we have a, uh, we have a Twitter account called at hidden Hemingway and it's, it's, um, uh, not only uh, a few pieces from the book, but we also do, um, you know, news and archival pieces of journalism and old photos and old, you know, bits of Hemingway film. So that's been a lot of fun and a, a way to interact and introduce Hemingway to a new audience. Um, and uh, if anybody's interested in learning more, we're at uh, hiddenhemingway.com. Great. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's been gone, what, a half century, but I just sent you an article the other day that I saw that was, was it Hunter S. Thompson was returning something he stole from Hemingway's house or antlers yeah, yeah. or something? Yeah, his, his widow, his widow, Hunter S. Thompson's widow returned antlers that uh, Thompson had walked off with. <laughs> Which is so Hunter S. Thompson, really. It just is very. Take him and walk out. <laughs> if you're, if you're going to be a rebel, do it. Yeah. Do it completely. Yes, exactly. Well, the book is Hidden Hemingway, Inside the Ernest Hemingway Archives of Oak Park. Robert K. Elder is one of the three authors. And I'm sure that universities, colleges, you know, teachers, scholars, and just readers and, and people who are interested in the world, interested in, in Hemingway and his literature will want to pick it up. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate your time talking to us. Gail, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye.